Yesterday and then Friday night as well, it was uh, particularly amazing. Owen Strand did a fantastic job on biblical manhood. Um, and the workshops as well were uh, good. I sat in on Tom Zobrist's workshop. There's two series, and, and one of them was Tom Zobrist among the others. I like Tom Zobrist. That's Ben Zobrist's father, if you're a baseball person. He's pastored the same church, I think it's in Eureka, Illinois, for 35 years. Uh, and he's always got some very interesting things to say. Uh, he's different enough where I, I don't agree with everything he says, but I... I even said in my own workshop, I don't always agree. I don't agree with myself either. Like, I disagree with some of what I say if I go back far enough. So that that's okay. But he's a very interesting individual. So this morning, we're going to be in Luke 24. Let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. God, our Father, I thank you. I thank you for the resurrection. I thank you for a plan of redemption, which which we certainly didn't, uh, couldn't expect, um, had no right to. Uh, we were dead in trespasses and sins, but God saved us by His grace. And that's why we are here, and that's why we celebrate. And that's why, you, that's why we can say th- these things and be in a relationship with you and say you are amazing and you're wonderful and there's nobody more glorious than you are. Who would have done what only you could do? What other king? How many kings are there that would condescend and become a man? What kind of a king would wash his disciples' feet? And die on a cross for them, that we could be brought back into a restored relationship with the God against whom we engaged in treason. We celebrate Christ, His person, His life, His death, His resurrection. I pray that your Spirit would enlighten our hearts to understand what is important to the text. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> All right. Going back a couple of weeks to Resurrection Sunday, in those first 12 verses of Luke's Gospel, we saw that some women went very early in the morning to the tomb, uh, and they realized, well, we hadn't really thought it through, who will roll away the stone, but they got there and they found out it had already been rolled away. At that moment, if you put the Gospels together, Mary Magdalene stopped and went back to tell the disciples, something is wrong. The other women proceeded to go towards the tomb and they were confronted or met with a couple angels who said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. risen Okay, you're still you're still there. So they go back to the disciples. They turn their backs on the tomb. They go back to the disciples and they're like, he's not there. He's risen. And they're like, yeah, 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 that's fair. That's fair. They go back to the disciples and they're like, that just doesn't make sense. I, that. Peter goes, in Luke's gospel, Peter goes back and he sees clearly the body's not there. The cloths are laying by themselves and he's, I forget what word it uses, I don't actually have it. But he's, I think I have it here. So, returning from the tomb, they told the rest to the eleven told these things to the eleven and to all the rest, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. 
So there's some confusion there at this point. Now we're going to pick up with the next part of the story. This is on page 885 if you're using a pew Bible. This is a very famous story uh, called The Road to Emmaus, where two disciples are traveling about seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they're having a discussion. Uh, Virginia Brooks, who uh, she's the one who donated uh, farmland to our church probably more than a decade ago. I don't know how long ago it's been, 15, 10, 10, 15 years ago. She donated 40 acres in Montgomery County, which we just sold, you know, early this year. And that's basically why we're not like in this huge building project phase where we're like, come on, you guys, dig a little deeper. Like, we need some money. Uh, we may still do that. I mean... <laughs> But at least initially, uh, we've got money set aside. You know, we'll be praying about it. We've, we're hoping to get in a good amount of bids, like four bids ideally, where we can kind of reconstruct the front, put in a lift so that both floors are very accessible, put the nursery upstairs, new bathrooms. There'll just be a little more space all the way around. Uh, that's kind of what is in the works. And it's because of Virginia Brooks donating that land. And, and the reason why I'm telling this story is because her salvation story is from a, um, I don't know what you'd call it, a retreat or something. It's called the Walk to Emmaus, where they present the gospel. And she went to this Walk to Emmaus uh, retreat, and that's where she became a believer. That's where she understood that faith in Christ isn't just religion and going to church. It actually means being in a relationship with a living Savior. And that's her story. That's her testimony. I've never not known Virginia Brooks. She held me as a baby. Uh, she was a family friend. And uh, I was had the privilege of doing her funeral service a good number of years ago. At any rate, I'm going to have you listen to this text. I'm not going to read it. I read it last week. I'm going to have uh, David Suchet read it. He'll read it from the New International Version, which is not, if you're using a pew Bible, it's a little bit different version. It's the same gist of it. Uh, he does a great job reading it. Uh, just follow along in whatever version you're reading. We'll listen to the entire episode, and then we'll break it down into smaller pieces all in one week. We obviously won't cover everything. It goes like this. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, 
and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. All right, so that's that's the narrative, the road to Emmaus. It starts off with a private discussion between two persons, one of which is named in the text Cleopas, or however David Suchet said it, and the other person is not named, uh, and there's a little bit of speculation. Who was who the other person? I would say the most common answer is, well, in fact, some commentaries will be like, well, it was obviously Cleopas's wife. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure why that's obvious. I don't think we know. It doesn't say. But I like what N.T. Wright said about who is the other person. And he made the point, you know, I think, he said, I think it's nice that Luke saw fit by the Holy Spirit not to give us the other name because you can put your name in there. You can very much personalize this story. One was Cleopas. Imagine you're the other person because to some extent that would be true. So the other person is us and then and then they're joined by Jesus, but of course we don't, or they don't know that it's Jesus. It explicitly tells us their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Uh, this is a miracle. It's not, it's not because, I mean, Jesus is in a glorified body. He wasn't raised from death, and he was completely beat up and weakened and barely able to move, he was resurrected with a body not like the body that was killed. It is a body that 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the difference between the body we have now, and if you are in Christ, the body you will receive at the resurrection. It's not. It's the same, and that it really probably in many ways looks the same, but it's, it's a body uh, in strength, not in weakness. It's a body that is immortal, not mortal. It is a body that will be incapable of sinning. It will be incapable of a lot of, all the limit, most of the limitations we have now. I suppose it will be like Jesus' body in that we are able to be in dimensions that we're not limited by now that, so that Jesus disappears in the room or he will appear in the room. I don't know that that'll be true for resurrected believers, but it seems possible. But at any rate, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And I have that word kept 
highlighted because it's a very strong word in the Greek. Uh, and that's what makes it a miracle. It's not just that they weren't sharp. It's not just that they forgot to wear their glasses. Uh, if it were me, that would be reason enough if I weren't wearing my glasses because I really don't see well without my glasses. But that's not it. The word kept means to take hold of forcibly. And if you take it back to a root from which it's derived in the Greek, it means to use strength or power. Their eyes were kept. To give you a couple examples of how this is used, uh, Herod laid hold of John the Baptist and threw him in prison. It's the same word. He seized him and put him in prison. Jesus tells a parable about an unforgiving servant who is forgiven a great debt. And he goes out and finds another servant who owes him just a little bit of money and he seizes him. And says, pay me what you owe. And if you can't do it, I'll throw you in prison. He seizes him. It's the same word. Another time the word is used is in the parable of the wedding feast. Where the king is having a a wedding feast celebration for his son. And he sends servants. And they seize the servants. And beat them up and kill them or, or do away with them. It's the same word. That's how violent this word is. That's how forcible this word is. They were kept from recognizing him by God. There was nothing that they could have possibly done in this moment to recognize who was with them. It was prevented them from knowing who this individual was. So the stranger speaks. The one that's a stranger to them. There's lots of things he might have said. We know what he did say, which we'll look at. But there's lots of things he might have said. He might have said, I know why you're sad. And I've got some really good news for you. He might have said that. He might have said what the angels told the women. Why why are you so distraught? Why would you look for the living among the dead? Why are you so distraught? He's not here. He's risen. risen. Right? Like Jesus might have said what the angels said, but he didn't. What Jesus said was he asked the question, what is this conversation that you are holding? They're having a private conversation, and and what they're going to answer Jesus as they explain things, I don't know that they're, I think they're probably backtracking And that their conversation was further down the road, but they're backtracking for this stranger. And they say, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know? Like, how could you not know? If you were alive when September 11th happened, how could you like a few days later not know that the World Trade Center came crashing down two big buildings? How could you not know that? Everybody knew that. Like nobody is is that remote in my mind. That they wouldn't have known that. This is in Jerusalem. I understand they don't know about it in Rome. Or Ephesus or Corinth or whatever the cities of the Roman Empire were. But if you're in Jerusalem. And you don't know what had happened. Everybody knew what had happened. Are you the only visitor who doesn't know? And so the two travelers rehearsed their disappointment. Because it tells me in the text, you know, we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. That was our hope. But our leaders took him and crucified him. They killed him. 
I mean, we've got this whole story about some women came. You know, they claim that they'd seen a vision of angels, that he's resurrected. But, but this is an amazing part of the story in verse 24, in my mind. It says, some of those who were with us went to the tomb. Some of us? I mean, you're talking, they're reporting that he's risen from the grave. And, and some of us thought, well, uh, I mean, we got we to go. That shows how much they don't believe this is possible. That, that shows how much they are convinced Jesus is dead and nullified. He's out of the equation. But a few of us went. I mean, these women are really upset. I mean, something's happened. I mean, I, whether it's a vision, they don't know. But some of us went and nobody saw Jesus, just to be clear. A couple words about, uh, oh, by the way, I suspect sometime in our life we will all be very disappointed with Jesus. And God. Uh, they're disappointed. They'd hoped. You know, I've got plans. I kind of think I know how I would, I would like my next 20 years to play out. And then in 20 years, I'd say, well, let's make it 30. <laughs> Very productive, healthy years, feeling good. And then just one day, you just don't wake up. That, I mean, sure, that's my hope. Why wouldn't it be my hope? Uh, we serve a God who will disappoint you because he, won't, he knows what he's wise enough not to give you what you want. That's how good our God is. He will disappoint me. For some people, he'll break your heart. But he knows what he's doing. And you have to trust him in the dark. So they're disappointed. And they express their disappointment to the stranger who's coming alongside. Two little sayings from two poets that are long since dead about disappointment. Number one, how disappointment tracks the steps of hope. An English poet. Disappointment tracks the steps of hope. Where you have hope in a certain outcome, in what you would like to see happen, disappointment is trailing close behind. And oftentimes it catches up. It just does. A second quote. He that knows nothing doubts nothing. From a book called Outlandish Proverbs. A George Herbert. 1500s and the 1600s. He who knows nothing doubts nothing. These disciples know something. They had hope. They knew something about what was written in the scriptures. They had some idea of what the Messiah ought to be like. They had hope. They knew something. They knew this. I mean, they were in Jerusalem because they're celebrating Passover, which is God delivering Israel out of slavery in the land of Egypt. Through his mighty right hand and through many miracles, raining down plagues on Egypt. God's people walking through the Red Sea as on dry land and then swallowing up Pharaoh and his army. They know something, and now they're doubting everything. When you have great hope, it causes you to doubt. And that's part of our humanity. I mean, Dr. Greer is one of my heroes in the faith, somebody that has influenced my life a lot. He, he says in his lectures once in a while, he's like, if you never have doubts, you'll lie to me about a lot of other things. Because it just doesn't always make sense. 
And sometimes it's kind of disappointing. So I want you to consider the irony of Cleopas's question, because his question is filled with irony. The question, again, is this. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here? How is this even possible? The irony is this visitor is the only one that knows what has happened. (laughs) It's everybody else that doesn't know. He's the only one that does know. And rehearse this real quick. Jesus was taken by the Jewish authorities to Pilate, the Roman governor, who peppers Jesus with lots of questions. Are you the king of the Jews? Where are you from? What have you done? Don't you know I have the authority over you to release you or to crucify you? And Jesus says you would have no authority over me at all except it were given you from above. What is truth? Pilate asked. What is truth? I don't know. Jesus knows all the answers to those questions. He's the only one who does know. Pilate takes him and takes him to King Herod. Uh, who's actually the ruler, the Roman ruler of the Galilean portion of Palestine. Well, Herod's delighted to see him because he's wanted to quiz Jesus for a long time. And yet, because, well, he asked Jesus lots of questions. Jesus answers none of those questions. And in his mind, in a sense, he believes in a resurrection because it tells me that King Herod thinks that Jesus is probably John the Baptist risen from the dead. That's kind of his working theory. Jesus answers none of his questions. Pilate doesn't know what's happened. Herod doesn't know what's happened. If you turn to the disciples, what happened to them when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? They all scattered. They all ran for the hills. Eventually, Peter and another disciple go back to the courtyard, and Peter winds up denying Christ three times. I think the other disciple is Judas Iscariot, by the way. I've got a great theory for that, which I've taught over the years, but that's not for today. But they don't know what's happened. And this, these are the seminary students, by the way. These are the ones that have been trained by Jesus more than any other disciple that Jesus has. And they have no idea what's happened. And a few of us went to the tomb, but we didn't find Jesus. The women that went to the tomb early that Sunday morning, they didn't know what had happened, at least not initially. They went to the tomb because they expected to anoint the body with spices because the job wasn't finished after he died. Sabbath was coming at sundown and they needed to get him uh, because a dead body would be unclean. They needed to put him away before Sabbath came because you couldn't work on the Sabbath. So they, they it was kind of a rush job. Now Sunday morning... They're going to finish what ought to be done in honor of a wonderful person who had lived. So they're going to expect a dead body. They don't know what's happened. Except for this vision of angels, but nobody's actually found the body. And then in John's gospel, you've got Mary Magdalene going back to the tomb. And she's looking in the tomb. And she doesn't seem particularly struck by it. It says a couple angels in there, but then she looks kind of glances over her shoulder or something and and sees somebody behind her who she imagines is the gardener. And she's like, sir, if you've taken his body, tell me where you've laid it. And I'll, I'll, I'll take the body. She has no idea what's happened. Nobody knows what's happened except Jesus. And the question is, are you the only one who doesn't know? That's irony. He's the only one who does know what's happened.
So Jesus' response is, oh, foolish ones. Oh, foolish ones. Um, we live in a culture that um, honors, no, that's not really the right, we live in a culture that likes skepticism. We like not to believe things. We like to question things. We don't, we don't want there to be absolute truth in our culture. You can have your truth, I can have my truth. Everybody can have their own truth because there is no capital T truth. Everybody has their own. And so it's fair game to believe nobody's really right. We're all right in our own little special way. And Jesus calls them foolish ones because, in fact, there is such a thing as truth. Uh, when I went to uh, Tom Zobris' uh, workshop yesterday... Uh, he was talking about just in light of what is capital tr- T truth, what is most important. And he was talking about, you know, in our culture, so much gets paraded as truth from media, from politicians, from science. They're all telling us what truth is. I, don't, I really have very low regard for all those people. The longer I live, the less regard I have for him. Because I, the only top, capital T truth I know is what God says in his word. Mm-hmm. And what I thought what Tom Zobra said was funny. He's like, people will ask me, well, why don't you, you know, the environment, like everything's falling apart. Why don't you trust the science? He's like, I'll give you two reasons why I don't trust the science. Two reasons. One is, science can't even tell you where all this came from. They don't even know that there's a God creator. He's like, they don't even know why everything exists. He's like, but I'll grant you, that's a pretty tough question. He's like, so let me give you a second question. Science can't even tell us the difference between men and women. So they don't know where we came from. They don't know who's a man and who's a woman. That's why I don't trust the science. And I'm like, yeah, that's a pretty good point. That's a pretty good point. So he calls them foolish ones, which reminds me of Romans. So I'm going to take you to Romans real quick. Romans says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In the Bible, unbelief is equated with foolishness. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, well, I don't know where all this came from. The fool has said in his heart, I don't know who God has created, that a man and a woman in his own image. They just don't know those things. And it's equated with foolishness. The evidence is clear. Vance Havener was a uh, very down-south, homespunny kind of evangelist preacher, uh, Warren Wearsby liked Vance Havner, I think. I, I'm not positive, but my understanding or my sense has always been that Warren Wearsby, who I like, was influenced by Vance Havner. They were kind of cut out of the same cloth, the same mold. 
You can YouTube Vance Havner. If you go on YouTube, you can listen to some of his old sermons. Uh, they're very interesting to listen to. He's got a way with words. Vance Havner said, Those who believe the Bible is a myth are mistaken and mithrable. That's, that's the kind of thing that he would typically say. Things like that. Another quote, which I, is kind of my favorite, probably, but it doesn't really have to do with the theme of what I'm talking about, but because I never brought out Vance Havner before, I don't think, I figure this is the time to do it. So another quote that he has that I like, that I think is very insightful, Satan is not fighting churches, he's joining them. He does more harm by sowing tares than by pulling up wheat. He accomplishes more by imitation than by outright opposition. Uh, Vance Havner, like Warren Wiersbe and G.K. Chester and certain people like that, they just have a, a way of condensing a lot of truth into these little pithy statements that are more true than maybe we want to believe sometimes. But uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, makes a distinction because the fools that are in Romans chapter 1 are not the same type of fools that this stranger is walking with on the way to a mass. There's different kinds of fools, right? And Charles Spurgeon has a word of warning. These aren't the same fools. So Spurgeon has this. The Lord knows the difference between the sin of, a ha- the sin of hating truth and the folly of doubting it. In Romans 1, you have a culture, a society, a people that hate the truth. God has clearly revealed His power and His nature in all of creation, and they suppress it because they hate it. We don't have a lack of information to know that everything has been created by one greater than we are, but we hate where that would take us as a culture. But on the road to Emmaus, you don't have people hating truth. You've got people engaged in the folly of doubting the truth, and there's a difference. The folly of doubting the truth. This is in your bulletin, at least part of this quote. Spurgeon says in the same sermon, They forgot the scriptures. They did not think of that great source of hope. Their eyes were dimmed with tears, so that they did not see what was plain before them. How many a precious text have you and I read again and again without perceiving its joyful meaning because our minds have been clouded with despondency. We take, I love his word pictures. We take the telescope and try to look into heavenly things and we breathe upon the glass with the hot breath of our anxiety till we cannot see anything. And then we conclude that there is nothing to be seen. Do you not think, beloved, You that are depressed and sorrowing today, that if you thought more of the promises revealed in God's word, you would soon see things differently and would rise out of your downcast condition. What a word picture. We desire to look through the telescope at these great things, but our hot breath of of tears and doubt have clouded up the glass and we conclude there's nothing to be seen. There's plenty to be seen if we will focus on what God has said. I love what Spurgeon does with that. Let's go back to our story. Jesus' response, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. The important thing here is Jesus isn't saying, look guys, don't worry, be happy. 
Like, you know, you will get out of life. If you've got an upbeat attitude, life will, you'll feel good about life. It's not just conjure up a good feeling in all this doubt and discouragement that you're experiencing. Rather, they're, they're to change their attitude in light of all that the prophets have written. How could you, how could you be where you are now in light of what the prophets have written? Warren Wearsby, what he does say, which I, am, I don't have it in my notes, but as I recall, make sure I get this right. Warren Wearsby said, either God will tell you what is true about your circumstances, or your circumstances will tell you what is true about God. If God teaches you what is true about your circumstances, you're understanding what he's already revealed in his word. And you're like, but I'm not experiencing that, but this is what God has said. And so my... My chips on what God has said, not on what I'm experiencing. Or it'll go the other way around. I know the Bible says this, but it can't be true because here's what I'm experiencing. God, God missed it this time. It might work for a lot of people, but it didn't work for me. It'll be one or the other. A book from 1955, The Grandeur and Mis- Misery of Man. He makes uh, kind of an interesting insight. He says this. Once I heard a man say I spent 20 years trying to come to terms with my doubts. Then one day it dawned on me that I'd better come to terms with my faith. Now I've passed from the agony of questions I cannot answer into the agony of answers I cannot escape. And it is a great relief. You know what? To have faith in Christ, to believe that He is the one who's Lord of heaven and earth and Lord over death itself, it's not going to answer all your questions. It's not going to answer all mine. And it's not going to keep me from being disappointed. But that's okay. Because the answers I have are sufficient to take the next step forward and to continue to trust Him with every life circumstance. That's a great quote. Jesus says, or, or it says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The word all is used three times in short succession. It was so plain and you missed it all along the way. And if you go to those prophets and you go to those Psalms uh, and you go to that the narrative that Moses wrote, if you take all that together, what you find is, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Was it really that big of a mystery? And once, once you see it, you can't not see it. And I'm sure I am... A long way from realizing all the ways that all of Scripture is pointing to Christ. And there are some authors that are very good uh, at at demonstrating what looks to be correlations between why things happen in the Old Testament in such specific, particular, nuanced ways and how that points to Christ. You know, one of the easy ones that everybody does know is, in fact, the movie. there was just a movie that came out about Abraham's uh, willingness to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah, and an angel stopped him from plunging the, sword, uh, the knife in. You know, the Bible never says, and that's a picture of Christ. It never does that. We know it is. I mean, it, make, it makes perfect sense, especially in light of stuff like this. But that's not a, that, you don't find that story in Hebrews and say, don't you know, that's a picture of God offering up his only begotten son who actually does die, that we would live. That's all true. But those dots aren't explicitly connected in Scripture. 
and how many instances of what God does as He reveals Himself to Israel through all that First Testament is a way of picturing what is true about Christ and His death and His resurrection. The grave had been opened. Jesus opened the Scriptures on this walk to the Maus, and then their eyes were opened in the breaking of the bread. There's a lot of opening on that very first Resurrection Sunday morning. Well, by now, I guess it's evening. But there's a lot of opening going on. And one of the songs once in a while we sing in church are songs like, you know, Lord, open my eyes that I may see. Open my eyes. If that stops being my prayer, I'm going to stop seeing. You know, Larry's kind of talking about it in Sunday school. You know, that like, uh, we're led by the Spirit so much as we are are walking in step with the Spirit and making ourselves available to the Spirit by His Word. As we take in more of God's Word, we are in a position for God's Spirit to reveal what, how we ought to be led and how we ought to live. And my eyes need opened. Then they said to each other, Did, our hearts, did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? Has your heart ever burned? For what is true? I mean, again, that's something I want to pray that God would continue to make my heart burn to know more. That no matter what I know, it needs to burn to know more about who Jesus is, why he came and what he did. And that my heart would burn. It doesn't happen apart from his word. It doesn't happen apart from prayer. It doesn't happen apart from the church. All those things are required. And God can burn a heart. You know, I talked about in a workshop I did at the Truth for Every Man conference, you know, in, just in passing, you know, we can build the altar. Elijah built the altar, you know. He arranged it in a certain way when he was confronting the prophets of Baal. He had water poured on that altar. You know, they piled up sticks around the altar. They put bulls on the altar. He can build the altar, but if God doesn't light the fire, nothing happens. Uh, it has taken me longer than I, I care to admit how much time I can spend building altars, messages I want to preach on a Sunday, and how little time I really am asking God to light the fire. It really doesn't matter the altar I build. God's got to light the fire. All the truth in the world coming out of any man's mouth isn't going to change anybody if God doesn't make your heart burn, if God doesn't light the fire. That ought to be our prayer. What are your comments and questions? Yes. So we could look inside. I would love to know, I would love to have an explicit transcript of every word that was said on that road to Emmaus. I think it would be fascinating. Uh, I, you know, like I wonder just for speculation, there's no way of knowing, and I could be off anyway, but I wonder if Jesus said like, what things? And he wants to hear them talk. Like, listen to what you're saying. Like, maybe it'll come to you. <laughs> like, you know, the stuff, as you're repeating it, it doesn't seem to make sense. And you're like, but you know, now that I think about it, now that I think about it, there's some prophecies in the Old Testament that says your Holy One won't see corruption. You know, now that I think about it, you know, there's Isaiah 53 that talks about, you know, the, the suffering servant. And he receives his reward. Now that I think about it, like maybe it'll come to them along the way, but it doesn't. And Jesus opens up the scriptures. And I wonder if they're like, wow, how did, like, how did I miss that? That's happened to me lots of times too. 
I remember, I can't believe, I was crazy old when I realized the whole Benjamin and Joseph story in the Old Testament, how, how Joseph was actually doing another test for his brothers by, by uh, giving all these benefits to Benjamin to see if they'll throw Benjamin under the bus like they threw him under the bus. Like, that's kind of like a fundamental part of several chapters. And it was like, I was like way into my Christian life before it ever struck me. I think I know what Joseph's doing there. And it was like, everybody else was like, well, yeah. I mean, it was like Larry did in Sunday school. Like, what's the obvious thing here? And we're all like, I don't know. We're like trying, we're coming up with these answers in Sunday school. And Larry's like, yeah, but what's obvious? And we're like, we're out of stuff. We've got, we're out of answers. And Larry's like, the obvious thing is the gospel is taking control. It's like, oh, well, yeah. But it needs to be said because we miss the obvious sometimes. These disciples are missing the obvious. And once they get it, the world's turned upside down. And once we get it, our church turns upside down. And by the grace of God, our culture turns upside down too. Anybody else? Uh, uh, Marsha. <laughs> our piano player. <laughs> I'm in good company. Larry does it all the time. <laughs> or we may not even be remembering what God says is true. So what it does, the doubts within the body of Christ, the doubts take the church back to, well, what does God say? You know, what do we know? What can somebody else contribute to this conversation? And that's all a good thing because we will be disappointed. If we've got a God that we think, oh, oh we've got this. I mean, God and us, we got this thing figured out. We know exactly where God's going. We know what God's going to do. If that's your God, he's not a God. Because God's a lot bigger than that. He's a lot bigger than my vision, a lot bigger than my plans. And so he's going to leave me sometimes with some doubts. And, and doubts can be good. You know, it's unfortunate sometimes in churches, some of the churches I grew up in, like everybody was supposed to always be happy and everybody, nobody doubted anything. We all, we all knew what the answers were because we were the church that took God's word seriously. Everybody else had gotten liberal. All the other churches in Decatur were liberal, but our church wasn't liberal. We just believed the Bible and we were right until I found out we weren't always right. And I find out I'm still not always right because I'm still a work in progress. And I benefit from everybody else. And we benefit by humbling ourselves before God's word and, and praying that God would make it burn. Burns away like the scales that are still on our eyes where we're missing big parts. I'm sure when Christ comes back in power and glory, I'm not going to be entirely right about how that looks. You probably aren't either. And when it happens, we'll be like, ah, oh, of course. How could I have not seen that? But I didn't. I didn't, and that's okay. Uh, Rick. It just speaks to the hearts sometimes. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, I've I've seen I've seen Christians age gracefully and not gracefully. Uh, some age very gracefully, and they are such charitable. They seem so molded into the image of Christ compared to where I'm at, uh, and they're amazing. And I love to follow those people, and I've seen some people that seem to just get harder and more brittle all the time. Uh, I've seen pastors both ways. Uh, in fact, I've, I've got a lot of pastor friends that they would, they would say, don't 
ever go into a church where, like, I've been here a long time, 28 years, and the general rule of thumb is don't ever go into a church. If I'm going to stay here, no other pastor should be here because people like me are pretty belligerent, usually. It's not always the case, but it's often the case where they can't entertain anybody that's any different than they are. But the gospel's bigger than me. Uh, and I'm not right about anything. Or everything. Not anything. <laughs> I'm not right about everything. Anyway. Uh, Larry. So this message that Jesus gave to the two other scriptures actually said... In the synagogues, for sure. Right. Yeah, in the synagogues, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. And, and once you have the key, once you... Well... Once by faith you see Christ for who he is, then the key fits all kinds of doors, all kinds of mysteries that never made sense. And now it makes sense over and over and over. And you discover more and more and more. And the Christian ought to be growing. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer. God, our Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this story about two disciples, one of which is us, one of which is me.